Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with columnist Barbara Kay about the institution of marriage in the 21st century. Barbara Kay has lived through a lot of different evolving notions of what marriage means. We're going to be talking about that and also talking about uh, the ways in which uh, the intersection of interests in trying to create a more just society and trying to create a more inclusive society and to combat racism and various kinds of bias can sometimes come into conflict with um, the need to sort of make sure that our society is safe for women and girls and how we resolve those conflicts. Uh, but before that, a couple of words about our sponsors and various ways that you can support the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsors. Uh, first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers online courses for all levels. And he can no matter where you are, he can move you very quickly towards taking better pictures and he'll teach you how to take very good pictures, how to um, develop them afterwards in different software programs so that they look fantastic. I've seen people to extend their skill level rapidly working with him. If you're interested in photography, definitely um, check that out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, Good Mix is a naturopath, sort of formulated uh, custom superfood. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts. It's um, very sort of low-carb, paleo. Uh, it's good for anybody. I mean, I, I have it every breakfast. Um, but it's especially good if you have any kind of um, digestive problems like irritable bowel syndrome or things like that. It promotes... Um, gut health, as they say. It's uh, very, very good for your your digestion. If you use the discount code LIKEVILLE15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Elsa's, if you live in Montreal, you probably know about it. It's my favorite bar in the city. It's We actually bought our place in part because it was close to Elsa's. It's in the middle of the Plateau neighborhood, sort of like the, the hipster neighborhood in town. Uh, it's on Roy Street. They have a wonderful atmosphere, really good food, uh, just an all-around fantastic place. Uh, check it out if you're in Montreal or you're going to be visiting Montreal. Today's episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, uh, Carrie des Artistes Galerie d'Art. This is a family-owned fine art gallery slash café in St. Henry, which is a neighborhood, up-and-coming neighborhood in the city, right by Atwater Market, right by the Lachine Canal. has uh, great food, uh, fantastic art, really interesting place. It's a mother-daughter business, right? The mother runs the art gallery and the daughter runs the cafe. So check it out if you're in St. Henry. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by our Patreon uh, supporters. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you should be. We need your money. Uh, go to www.patreon.com. 
uh, slash like-filled podcast. You can also support us by leaving a review, a positive review, of course, on iTunes. Um, you can um, also join our Facebook group. Just put in like Phil, you'll find us. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the like Phil pod. Right, and we will keep you apprised of various developments, right, you know, future guests. You can ask questions, things like that. Um, and also for people that become Patreon supporters, there are various things like video versions of our interviews, extra bits of interviews that were not put uh, on the regular, on the sort of the limited time extra parts that will be there. So uh, join up. Without further ado, I give you my second conversation with Barbara Kay. So welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we are going to be talking again for the second time with a friend of the podcast, uh, the columnist Barbara Kay. Welcome, Barbara. Very nice to be here, John. Yeah. So um, we were we had talked about this because you wrote an excellent article where you were thinking about the state of the institution of marriage at the moment. And there's I mean, there's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about today, but why don't we start off with that? So what do you think is going on with marriage in the 21st century? What is happening to the institution? Uh, well, of course, the big thing that happened to marriage in the 20th century was that it became, because of the pill, it became disassociated from uh, family raising, I mean, from having children. And there was a very kind of bright line between an age in which... Uh, sex went together with uh, reproduction and reproduction went together with marriage and it was a very clear cut uh, where morality and biology uh, there was no demarcation it was they were very much in sync that was the age I grew up in and came to maturity in. so I understood that uh, so one was very careful about one's sexual mores because one didn't feel protected right mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and but men too, they understood, uh, you know, this, this, this joke thing about the shotgun marriage. It wasn't a joke uh, because, you know, if you, air quotes, got a girl pregnant, <laughs> mm -hmm. you married her. That was... Oh, my, my, yeah. my wife's parents are, have been happily married for, you know, they're, they're pushing 50 years of marriage. They're very, very happily married. They have a great marriage. They got married because she got pregnant. So many people, They were teen yeah. teenagers. And I mean, people talk, I mean, I know that there are, you know, plenty of bad marriages that started off that way. But I also know a lot of good ones yeah. that started off that way. And I know plenty of marriages that started off, you know, the way we think they're supposed to that became terrible. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah. So, but, so but it was, they were it very was, much yeah. linked. They were very much yeah. linked. Uh, waiting for sex was very much a thing because of that. You know, marriage gave you permission, uh, and it also saved you from the shame and ignominy of, you know, pregnancy outside wedlock. Okay, so now suddenly there is foolproof protection against pregnancy. And of course, uh, in combination with the cultural revolution, uh, femini feminism, sexual liberation for both men and women. So after that, marriage, suddenly people 
took a critical look at it and it was like, well, what is it good for if we don't, if we're not having children or we're not having them right away or we, you know, and women are having careers and all these things should be much more important than family, which is, of course, uh, a, a sort of an oppressive institution, this idea that women were oppressed uh, in marriage. And that became an idea that really did take hold. I mean, it wasn't just radical feminists saying that. It, it began to look that way, after all. You know, most women who did marry stayed home when they had children. They weren't paid for that. It was, you know, considered in their minds. It was drudgery. It was all these things. Uh, so, yeah, marriage took a hit, a real big hit. And, of course, morally, uh, there was no distinction anymore between women who didn't get married but had lots of lovers or people that lived common law or uh, whatever. So marriage in itself became a very fungible notion. And the only people that were really taking it seriously were religious people or people raised in circumstances in which they they had that very cultural, very strong cultural. I mean, in my community, even after feminism took hold uh, and even after all that, you still find... Uh, that uh, Jews do push for marriage, and they don't wait till they're very, very old. Not, not normally. I mean, I look at my kids' generation. They got, they knew they were going to get married. They weren't going to live common law. They weren't going to, you know, that that was not the cultural norm. It's still not the cultural norm, even in here in Quebec, where it is the cultural norm outside of ethnic communities. I think Italians the same. Oh, when I ask my students, I, I mean, I teach a class called Love and Friendship, and we deal with this issue. I've been teaching that course for 10 years now. And I ask students, how many of you want to get married? Right? How many of you want? And it's unbelievable. This is such a clear pattern. It's uh, South Asians, Indians, Greeks, Jews, uh, and, and very religious people. They're like, yeah, we want to get married. And they see this as just part of the natural life course. Mm -hmm. And that's and the vast majority of the sort of white Francophone or white Anglophone uh, native born students, like the majority of them say they they don't hmm. have any intention of getting married. They, it just doesn't seem like like, why would I do that? Well, OK. And, and <laughs> which why, is amazing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like that. <laughs> and why would you do that? I, yeah, that's a good question. But those of us who are married or, you know, those who have been married, even if it's unsuccessfully married, they know that there's a vast difference between living together and getting married. When you get married, you really are bringing two families, you know, the, the two future sets of grandparents are coming to know each other like this. You may not have a vast fortune to split, you know, to add to, was, I, I mean, in the old days of, uh, oh, yes, uh, their dowries property, and stuff, dowries, yeah. and, yeah. oh, yes, they have 160,000 acres, and we have, you know, 80,000 acres, that would be a good marriage, we're, we'll just put them together, that, but, but economic reasons were one reason to get married, I mean, marriage was never really about passionate love, that's, that's a new thing, very Mar recent, yeah, yeah, of course, so marriage was about a whole bunch of things, and the last thing it was about was love, but now it's all about love, right? And yeah. and wanting that the romantic ideal, yeah, yeah, and the permanence and the uh, all right, fine. But what I find interesting is that marriage is now because it's one of many options, and there's no social uh, stigma to not being married. You can be, you can have serial relationships. You can have uh, one long-term common-law relationship. You can be married 
and have children. You can be, not be married and have children. The law doesn't look at you in any different way, nor do social, you know, uh, no, you're, not, you're not stigmatized socially. So, so now that marriage it was at the point that marriage became totally diminished in importance or in cultural significance, that it suddenly became something that everybody had to have access to, right? It's very interesting. Now I'm seeing all these, um, these conversations about a uh, woman, uh, can a trans woman call them herself a woman? Uh, or does she have to call herself a trans woman? Because a woman has a biological meaning. And uh, I'm with the radical feminists on this who say you can't erase an entire biological category by mm-hmm. saying, oh, yes, a woman is a human being with a vagina or a, a human being with a penis. Yes, yes, they both mean woman. I said, no, no, you can't do that. You, you know, <laughs> we, we have to have some form of categorization here. And yeah. you can't suddenly say that that's something that has had a biological meaning for forever is suddenly because somebody else feels womanish in their head that, well, now you must call me a woman and, and you must change the definition of woman to suit me. So I'm with them, but they were not with me when I was saying, no, no, no. If, it's, if gay people are getting married, then it's not marriage, it's garage or it's something else. Have a new word, you know, make up a new word. That's not marriage. Marriage is about reproduction. Uh, well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes, it has been about that at certain points, but there's also been, if you take the Christian tradition of marriage, it was for the most part um, thought of as like a spiritual union mm-hmm. that had consequences in heaven that far transcended uh, reproduction. Yeah. It far transcended like that it was, you know, a really, really big deal. It was a spiritual thing. So I don't think um, it necessarily always, practically speaking, it usually was about reproduction. But I, I tend to sort of think that now that since we're living much longer and we're going to be living mm-hmm. much longer, I mean, the estimated uh, life expectancies, it's going to go up to 120 and not long. So uh, that means that of necessity, most of a marriage, if it's going to be a, a long marriage, is going to happen far outside of the sure. childbearing years. Right? Sure, but, so, but it's, I'm not saying you have to have children to, you know, my my concept of marriage is there's certain things it, it it's a paradigm it doesn't mean everybody fits the paradigm and i i look at it as if you're a canadian citizen if you're born here you're you know you're a canadian citizen you don't have to vote to still be a citizen so uh you can choose not to vote that doesn't make you less of a citizen so to me marriage is you don't have to have children but the main reason for marriage is the same as democracy is to citizenship, is so that the people elect their own government. The main reason for marriage is to perpetuate society in an orderly and uh, way in which children are protected the best. And I still believe that. Yeah. Um, Oh, I definitely think, I mean, there's no, I grew up in a neighborhood with lots of single moms. My mom was a single mom. And I've definitely seen that kids who have two parents just they always do better yeah, you know work and and that's you know that's even like kids that have like two lesbian moms or two i actually have never known any uh gay guys with kids i know it exists but i've never personally known. oh there's one i know in, there's i know one in my son's neighborhood okay uh, the there's plenty kids, there's plenty of uh lesbian couples yeah. married lesbian couples in this neighborhood that i know and their kids i have grown up with our kids and they're they're fine and so it seems to me that like if, if i take like a much more I guess like a pragmatic view of marriage. Like I think 
and I know I don't mean to be like morbid here, but I've spent a fair amount of time in um, in sort of watching people die, like friends and family members, and being there with them, or being with people when they are at the end of a very difficult time, whether it be cancer or schizophrenia sure, or something like partner, that. Yeah. And you know what? The person who's there with you at the end, mm. it's your mom, it's your spouse, mm-hmm. it's like your close closest sibling. All those friends that yeah. are part of your community and stuff like that, they're not there with you. They're never there with you, yeah. right? So uh, people who, uh, you know, and I mentioned that in that, that piece on, you know, the progressive bullies that like this one guy I know, he's he's alienated all of his actual the, the kind of yeah, people that, that would very be interesting that idea. would yeah. be there with him at the end. He's alienated yeah. all of them for this imagined community that won't have his back when it counts. So mm-hmm. th- when I think about marriage as it as it should work, it should be a, a very very powerful bond with another person mm-hmm. where they are responsible for you financially. They're responsible to take care of you mm-hmm. when you're when you're sick. If you go through like a, you know a really bad depression or something like that, or you're, you're out of work for three years, you have somebody else that can like pay oh, the yeah. bills well, yeah. well, and take t- care yeah. of the kids. Yeah. You're talking about mating. You're talking about mating. I'm not against mating for anybody. And I was never against uh, uh, gays having uh, the same uh, civil rights and, and partnership rights and all of that. I was, I, I always argued, you know, marriage is, is a heterosexual institution, but uh, civil contracts should be available to any two people that are interdependent. But I didn't even believe that it should be limited to people who are in a sexual relationship. I think civil contracts uh, should be available to, say, two sisters that are living together or two old army buddies who are responsible for each other and who, who in a case of one being sick, would have the executive uh, power to mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so I'm not against people uh, having their mating privileges and, you know, or even having children. That That's, that's, I'm a libertarian on that score. But if you're asking me, what does marriage mean? To me, it is. And, and I always say to people who say, oh, no, no, but, you know, equality means, and I say, you know, it's funny that this drive for equality only started when marriage became something that you could have or not have and nobody cared anymore and that it's easy to get out of. Mm -hmm. I said, a hundred years ago when you got married, divorce was extremely difficult or 200 years ago. Would gay people have wanted to get married under those circumstances where it was almost impossible to divorce? I don't think so. So in other (laughs) words, in other words, the drive for alternate people getting married, not heterosexuals, only began when it was, it's basically a very symbolic thing now. So yeah, you want to be married, fine. You don't want to be married, fine. It's not going to impinge on your on your legal rights or your right to adopt children or any of that. Um, so it's actually become, for many people, uh, a kind of uh, uh, symbol of, you see, we're all equal. And I'm like, well, okay, you're you're having an equal type wedding, and you're having an equal type, you know. But to me, it's it's uh, um, it's performance, not uh, not essence. Yeah. Well, for for me, that it has much more practical consequences. Like if you're married, what well, I what I'm worried about, I'm not worried about you know 
gays getting married or lesbians. That doesn't bother me at all. I that seems completely that fits my Christian conception of a marriage as being two souls together. I don't think it's just necessarily about reproduction. But I'm not I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about all my students who put up their hand and say, yeah. like, I, I don't need this institution at all. I'm going to just go it, go it alone. And they, this attitude that I don't need my family. I don't need a marriage. I don't need that, that I've got my friends. I've got, and I, they don't realize that all the numbers, I try and show this to them every semester, all the, the stats bear this out. Friendships are incredibly transient in our in young, our society. But they're so young. I, I hear the same thing when I teach at McGill on the same subject in Concordia, older kids. They really believe that these these identity communities, that these abstract abstractions, even their, their friends, that these people are going to sustain them. Hmm. And in fact, I, I think it's I think it's a really bad idea to try and take on, you know, big life projects without people that are closely, closely aligned to you. Absolutely. People that have your and and that has to and it's this this attitude that you know I don't need marriage I don't need family I don't need my community I don't need my nation state I don't need my I can just be an individual who's a citizen of the world mm-hmm. and I don't have commitments to any anything and I don't need that is insanity I mean like you you actually you really yeah. do need to have some commitments to somebody and something in some way. Oh, yeah. You need an infrastructure. You need an emotional support infrastructure. But I guess people that are uh, very immersed in their activities and their professions and they're young and they're healthy, uh, they don't envision. When I was young, I did think a lot about being old and lonely and all that. Me too. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think some people have this kind of... uh, there, it's an inborn thing to think about death a lot. And I, I used to always think about death. Did we discuss this last time? I don't, no, I, oh, no, okay. we didn't. But no, I, I, I always did too. And it wasn't just because yeah. I was into Leonard Cohen. No. It's because I volunteered at an old folks home for a oh, number of years really? when I was a teenager. Oh, boy. And I was there like, and it was an old folk called the Moffat Home in Verdun. And it's for, it was for elderly women. And I, lots of the women that I became friends with died, like, you know, while I was there and I got to see them like on their last day. I actually went in a room once and found one of them dead. And so that was like when you're at your peak sort of male testosterone pump, I'm going to live forever. I can, I'm uh, indestructible. I was hanging out with like these old and watching them die and, and, and becoming friends with them and really kind of made me who I am. I mean, it made me like realize like, whoa. You know, John, you're mortal. That, no, but that's incredible that a, 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 a kid of your age would choose to do that. That's see, this is this is the spiritual part of you that's that's always there. Uh, this is something very few people at any age would choose to do because it's more fun to be with babies than it is with old sick people. And boy, I think the fact that you did that as a teenager, I'm totally impressed with that but I I didn't do that but I always thought about death a lot and the older I get needless to say uh, (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. about it a lot more and I remember I was talking to one of my younger friends uh, in her 50s and and I we were talking about thinking about death oh she says do you think about death I said I think about it maybe only 40 or 50 times a day and she was (laughs) and she was astonished and she says well why I said because it's out there (laughs) and she was I said don't you ever think about 
how you're going to die, when you're going to die. Like, She says, no, I actually never do. She's very upbeat and she's actually a very spiritual person. Uh, she says, no, I don't think about it hardly ever. It, it, you know, That's even, insane. And, and, and by the way, she deals with, because she's a religious person, she too is in the company very often of older people that are in decline. Or um, So I thought, I always thought everybody did. And then when I questioned people, it turns out not everybody does. Oh, no. They get really weird if you start talking about it. Wow. Like they get very uncomfortable. They don't want to. Uh, I mean, Socrates said all of philosophy is basically a preparation for death. Yeah. That you're supposed to be they, uh, you're supposed to be thinking about uh, death and thinking about you know preparing for it and thinking about the implications of being mortal what that means right yeah i do i think about it a lot and i also think what's my legacy going to be and is this something i want people to know uh to say about me be after i'm dead like what do i i'm always thinking about what my eulogy is going to be like (laughs) yeah same here same here yeah i am exactly i've been the same way for a very long time yeah no i i think about it uh, i'm not i'm not in a hurry to get there but I definitely think about it, and I definitely think about. I mean, like I had my, uh, my whole sort of like funeral and my death like yeah. planned out when I was in my early twenties. Wow! No, I I wouldn't go that far to say I planned the funeral, but I am interested. I'm 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 sort of a little irritated that I'm not going to know what the eulogy. I'm almost tempted to ask John, my son, to write it now, <laughs> so I'm sort of going to know, and you that would satisfy it. my curiosity, and that would be it. Don't you think that if Tony Clemens had our kind of approach to life that he would be in a better position today than he is Who's right Tony now. Clements? The one who just got fired for sexting, uh, you know. The oh, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I mean, mean. Did he think he wasn't going to be found out or this was not, you know, this is this was, he was going to be the, the one guy that never got. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I, I mean, thinking things, that. thinking things like that. Like, I always, you know, when I, like, for instance, like in, a, in an online environment, uh, one thing somebody asked me once it was um, I think it was actually your son who asked me this but like somebody asked me they were like you know you seem to be able to like you know engage with people and kind of get get fired but you you never cross the line like what is what is it you're a tenured prof like what do you care they can't fire you <laughs> <laughs> he said what what uh, is what keeps the line like there for you and I said I everything I write or say in any kind of public environment, I always imagine my sons can read this. That, they can see yeah. this. And I don't want to say anything that would that I'd be embarrassed, you know, to say in front of them or write from them. I wouldn't want them to read that and say, like, you know, oh my God, like my father's what you know, like I think that's what a what a mean, I'm, perverted thing to say. Like no, why you're did he like, say you're, you're like yeah. I I I'm 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 so in tune with you on this. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I wrote a column once and it was about um, when the Supreme Court said that uh, uh, swinging, you know, couples that go to clubs yeah. to, to <laughs> have sex with people, not their partners, and they go with their partners so that they can, you know, it's all very voyeuristic and all that. And they said, uh, well, that's a legal activity. That, you know, clubs, those clubs are legal and that's fine. And I wrote a column about it and I said, you know, I'm trying to get into the heads of people that do this. And uh, <laughs> so they go and they, and I say, well, they always say that's very healthy. This is uh, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing immoral. You know, we're honest with each other with our partners, and our partner, you know, has a certain status in our life. But we do this. It's recreational sex. It's, I mean, they have all these. So I actually interviewed one of the people, you know, involved in these swingers clubs, and I and I. <laughs> 
And I'm speaking to her, and I said, uh, do you have children? She, she says, yes, we have, you know, teenage children. I said, and do you tell them about, uh, do you tell them about your swinging activities? And there was a sort of silence. And she said, well, n- not really. And I said, well, but it's, you know, you consider it healthy and, you know, and all these things, but you you're hesitant, you know, you don't want to, you don't want your children to know about this, do you? You know, and she sort of hemmed and hawed. And, and I thought to myself, man, if I was doing something like that, which in my wildest dreams, but what if my, and I said, what if my, and it's not just what if they knew, because maybe they could handle it and they would sort of like uh, go into the bathroom and scream and then come out. But what, what if their friends would say, gee, John, Joanne, you know, um, your mom was in the news with, you know, what's with the, uh, what's with the uh, going out nude to protest, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these these women that 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 would uh, what was it? Um, a whole bunch of women uh, were photographed naked, and they were holding uh, they were holding little signs over their their private parts saying. Uh, uh, grab them by the ballot. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah! I saw that picture thought, going around. Oh my god! Yeah. And, and uh, John tweeted. He says, "I, I, I know that I'm supposed to think that this is possibly a good idea. I can't decide. Somebody tell me." I said, "It's a very bad idea. You know, you can go back to whatever you were doing." Um, but, but I, my first thought is, do you women? You're on Twitter. Do you not have children? Do you not have? Brothers and sisters and family and friends who are going to look at this and go, ooh, yeah. you know. There's that. There's that. <laughs> I, I. There's a. Um, I think it's. I think it's Cree, but there's a, a Cree. It's apparently it's a common in a lot of indigenous uh, languages. There's a common. Um, I guess you would say like a like almost not not a, a phrase. And it means it translates to uh, Thomas King, the Canadian uh, native writer, r- mentions this in a number of his books. That it translates to uh, act. You're acting like you have no relations, and it means like you're acting in a shameful way, as if you don't have any relations that would be really embarrassed by your behavior and would bring it up. Like you're acting like you have no relations, and I thought it's uh, you know it. It's so funny that you mentioned this because I literally just a few days ago for something that I'm a piece that I'm working on, I interviewed a guy who's a polyamorist and he has because I'm trying to like understand what's what polyamory is because I, I my my gut tells me that I, I just I find it very hard. I don't really buy it. It seems like uh, everybody I know. Uh, who's tried, who's dabbled in that lifestyle, it hasn't worked. No. It's ended in tears. It's ended in people hurt and in a lot of like, you know, badness. So I was interviewing this guy and that was like one of my first questions to him. We were sitting there in Elsa's and we're like having, uh, you know, having a beer and talking about this. And I said, so uh, what about the kids? Because I know this guy has uh, has a few kids from uh, different women uh, one of whom actually goes to the same school as my my kids, mm. and I said like, so how do you manage that? Like, doesn't that doesn't that weird out your kids if they see you kind of going in the bedroom with like a different person? Like, I think my my kids would be really weirded up by that. They would not. Um, and he said, oh, they get you know, kids get used to whatever is. And I said, but don't they don't they feel that? their relationship with you is to some extent contingent on your relationship with their mother. And so if that is imperiled and that's like 
um, that sort of challenges their because kids tend to go sure. with the mom, right? So the two of them are not together anymore. He's with somebody else, um, and and he didn't he didn't have a very satisfactory answer. I thought to that, like, because I think I think it's important regardless of what kind of relationship yeah. you're in, you know, whether it's like gay marriage, straight marriage. I think it's really important that the kids know who's got their back, mm-hmm. right? Whose first loyalties are with them. And it just seems like that complicates things a lot. You know, yeah. he thinks, oh, kids can get used to anything. That's that's what people tell themselves. And that's a good thing to tell yourself if you want to do what you want to do. I mean, selfish people, uh, that's their first line of defense. Kids get And kids can certainly get used to a lot. That doesn't mean they're happy. It doesn't mean that it's not going to have a deleterious effect on them psychologically, or uh, it may make them uh, unable to form trusting relationships later on. I mean, you don't know because you don't see, children don't walk around with with all their sorrows on their face or they, they don't articulate them because half the time they don't even know what they are. Uh, but so that is that is a total cop-out. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is just people uh, wanting what they want. And, yeah. Uh, it's like the the old line that was popularized in the seventies and eighties that when people wanted to justify, you know, running off with their secretary or something, they would say, Well, you know, my therapist said that the most important thing is that you're happy. And if you're happy, the kids will be happy. You know, that's such bullshit. And uh, yeah, I know it's such bullshit. <laughs> like Stephen Marsh took a lot of heat for in his book, uh, his last book, The Unmade Bed, the truth about the the messy truth about men and women in the twenty first century. He took a lot of heat for in that book saying, look, the numbers are very clear. Uh, kids are way happier if the parents are, if they have two parents, they do far better on every single indicator. And also that whole thing about how it's just about being you being happy, not true. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, even if the couple, as long as it's not violent, yes. you know, even if the couple's not very happy, the yeah. kids are way better. Yeah. They do way better yeah. if the, if the, parents stay together so this whole thing that like well we should go and be happy like not true like if you actually are putting them first you'd try and like work it out yeah this is our therapeutic culture is so good for selfish people uh, yeah because this whole idea you know you've got to be you authentic you know the real you and 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 if you repress all these you know these longings and you know this is bad for you and it'll have a bad effect on i mean uh this is unfortunately the, the, the culture that we live in. I, I just wanted to, what you said about, was it the Inuit who say? I think you, it's Cree. Or Cree. Yeah. Who say you act as though you had no relations. Yeah. What they're really saying is you don't know the meaning of honor because uh, this is very much about what honor is. Um, and uh, cultures that have a very high respect for the notion of honor, and of course, always that goes along with a great deal of respect for the concept of shame um, they which can work good or bad for good or bad um, this is this is the whole principle of it if if you if the people that you care about are going to be embarrassed or humiliated by your behavior then this is shameful you yeah know, you've, you've brought shame uh, to your family and to so yeah yeah no it's a very very important thing it's a well Talking about sort of behaving dishonorably, this is the other thing I wanted to bring up with you. It's been just bugging me for for a while. So (laughs) I got to make sure that I describe this in a way that's not going to get me in trouble here. But like, um, so my sister a few weeks ago 
Um, she was she got on the metro at I think it was uh, Place des Arts or uh, yeah I think it Place des Arts. She got on the metro to go to Verdun to pick up uh, my my nephew, her son from daycare. And so she gets on the metro, and there's these two young guys, both uh, very tall, you know, over six feet tall, big guys. And but they're probably, I would guess, from the picture that uh, that she took of them, probably like about seventeen, maybe. Like so that would be my guess. But and so they're big guys, and they uh, start being like really, really, um, very, very inappropriate, like uh, touching and like, like, and saying all these like really gross comments and stuff like that. And Ooh. my sister was horrified. Now, just to tell you, my sister is no retiring shy retirement she's like you she's she's she was a bartender for years Whoa. she knows how to deal with like you know she's assertive she's strong yeah. she can speak she's a lead singer in a band and you know all this oh. stuff so she's a powerful she's not a weak kind of like and these guys were like when she's told them like you're stop behaving like that stop talking like what are you doing uh they got only double down and like said they were going to you know i'm gonna like we should kill you. We should hate you. Beat you. Was she alone and with them in this? No, there were all sorts of people <gasps> on the metro. Nobody did a thing. Oh, the story gets way worse. So nobody did a thing. Um, so she was absolutely shaking, and furious, like very, very angry. Um, when she and this was a lot, like ten stops. It was all the way to Verdun Metro, which is almost the end of the Green Line. And um, so she got off. And she took a picture of these two young guys. And then she she said, like, you know, this is absolutely unacceptable behavior. And then she turned to everybody on the metro and she said, you know, thanks to all of you for doing nothing and wow, saying absolutely she's nothing. So great. Wow. Right. So then she um, she went out of the metro, she's walking to the daycare. She stops uh, there was a cop car parked on the street. She stops, she tells the cop she says exactly what happened. And they basically said, "There's nothing we can do." Um, they said, "No, we can't. We can't do anything." Um, so then she posted it on Facebook and on Instagram, pictures saying, "If anybody knows the parents uh, or the educators, like if anybody knows the teachers, principals, parents, family of these young guys, um, say say something." Right now my sister has a very wide network she's like a rock star she knows like tons of people so she posted i i shared it to everybody a bunch of, so it very quickly was wow had tens of thousands of you know eyeballs on it all over montreal so within eight hours we had like names and uh, people who recognized them and had you know all this stuff so uh but what i wanted to ask you about is a number of things. First of all, we found out the next day uh, a woman who works for CJD posted um, that she also was on the metro and that the same two guys, she also took a picture of the same two guys wow. doing exactly much worse, actually. And all these other stories were pouring in that they were tripping old ladies <gasps> in the Eaton Center. No. And that people in the Eaton Center, stores had complained. And uh, somebody who works there took a picture of them because the security wasn't doing anything about these kids and nobody was doing anything. Right. And he said, they, they like regularly like grab women's asses. They, uh, they, you know, just taunt people for fun and things like that. And literally trip old ladies like in the, the mall. So, um, 
this you know all these different people are pouring in the stories about the same two guys right and uh eventually like all sorts of people started um flooding sending messages posting i i hope your mother's proud of you i hope like your family knows what you're doing and sending messages i'm not sure what has actually happened right but what was fascinating to me is that the immediate response that my sister got from a lot of uh, from a lot of progressives and that i got was uh, this is uh, absolutely horrible um because you know the two the two young guys were uh, African Canadian background, barely, and like, and immediately said like, "Well, this is really, really racist." Oh my god! And like, you should. And we're saying, "Well, why didn't you just? You could have done something. You could have got off the metro." And she's like, "No, I needed to go pick up my kid from daycare. Uh, I had to go." And they were just completely putting it on her. And they were saying, "Well, you know, like this, the, you know." And I, I definitely know that there's a pretty ugly tradition of. Um, especially in the United States, of white women um, sort of claiming that they were uh, you know, attacked or sexually harassed by by young black men. I mean, Emmett Till is an obvious example of something. You know, and on her deathbed, she said, "I made it up. It didn't really happen." I know. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, an ugly history there. Sure. Absolutely, no doubt. But what was shocking to me about the whole thing. And, you know, the hate mail I got from people, people <gasps> saying, like, I didn't realize the KKK was active in Montreal. Can't believe and, it. like, you're, like, I've reported you to a bunch of different organizations. You're a racist. You're that's like, terrible. This I is, mean, talk I about kept all of the, the messages. Talk I, about I, blaming the victim. Yeah. My God, that's terrible. And um, it just, it, it sort of brought home something that you've been talking about for years in your columns and in your speeches and things like that. It's that when... Um, very often when there's culture wars and sensitivity about uh, about racism women are the collateral damage mm -hmm. all the time right like in this situation uh, nobody was saying that it was wrong for you know these guys to be incredibly uh, like gross and yeah. inappropriate with uh, with a, a woman who's like a foot shorter than them or to be you know so uh, nobody was talking about that it was immediately just Wow. Right, you um, be quiet. Right. I mean, what do you yeah. What do you think about this? Like, well, I think this is where we are. Is is that uh, identity politics has made uh, has has decreed that certain groups are always victims, even when they are the victimizers, because they and people can't get their head around the fact that they can step out of the role of victim and become. You know, they can't. They're innocent. These are in. If you if you are of the victim class, you're you're innocent no matter what you do. And if you're of the privileged class, uh, shut up because and take it. You know uh, that's that's not you can't complain about it because your lives are so privileged that uh, it's like the old Woody Allen. I don't you you wouldn't remember obviously. When I was young, I saw Woody Allen when he was just starting out at the Hungry Eye in in New York. Mm -hmm. And one of his jokes was about how their black cleaning lady used to steal from his mother's purse, and they didn't know what to do about it. But they decided because his mother was, they were very progressive Jews, of course. You know, they thought, well, who else is she going to steal from? You know? <laughs> oh, my God. So they decided to just shut up and, and take it because, after all, you know, <laughs> yeah. she had to steal from somebody. So it might as well be them. I mean, it, it was, he was, even then, he, he was ahead of his time yeah. in, in this whole idea that, if, the, if somebody's had a terrible history, 
then you let them get away with unethical behavior because of of their past. And and this is a very pernicious idea. Uh, a, because these particular people maybe didn't suffer anything at all and, and they should be judged as individuals. And B, because your sister also, what has she done in her life to deserve this? What, did she own slaves? I mean, you know, come on. You, you, cannot, you cannot keep treating uh, people when they're doing, when you're supposed to be judging actions uh, and behavior, you're, you're judging status. You're judging victim status and, and, and immediately figuring out what silo does this person belong in, what political silo, as if, oh, yeah, well, he's a member of the Kulak you know, or he's a member of the bourgeoisie, so it doesn't matter what happens to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is uh, a very Marxist way of looking at the world, and it's a disgusting way of looking at the world. And it, to presume that you're racist because you're calling out uh, immoral behavior, you, in other words, you're 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 prematurely guilty. You're you are guilty because of your class. Used to be your class. You're guilty because of your color. You're guilty because of your status as as uh, a male you're guilt i mean there's all these guilt traps and you're yeah. already in them you're already in them it's just a question of who's going to identify you so if if the you can imagine if the victim here had been black and the two guys had been white mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine and they took a picture of them it would be they'd have the police force you know combing the city yeah to find these guys. well that's exactly <laughs> what i said i said you know you know would they when the skinheads were, I mean, they, they pretty much don't exist anymore. But I remember when I was a teenager in Montreal, there was around, around NDG, around the Benny Farms area, yeah. there were like some pretty yep. nasty skinheads, the ones that I Albert remember. Nuremberg, yeah. when, he, when he infiltrated the group and everything. But um, they, I said, you know, if, if it was a couple of big skinheads from, you know, from NDG who were on the Metro and they were talking like that and behaving like that towards, let's say, you know, like a little like Philip Filipina girl or something like that, and or saying, and this would, I mean, they would have this SWAT team down, sure. like to descend on them, like, oh, this is absolutely horrible, and it's a hate crime and all this stuff, and like, it's yeah, it's very odd. It's, it's also one somebody immediately pointed out to me something which I had not heard about, but do you remember there was a couple of years ago there was a big kind of awareness campaign about catcalling? Oh yeah, and there was this uh, one woman who. Uh, bicycled to work every single day and she had a GoPro camera and she trained it on on like the the side and stuff like that and just at all of the disgusting comments she got on you know one one trip to work it was unbelievable I couldn't believe like how many and the the vile and kind of aggressive nature of these things and so then she posted this on YouTube and she said this is what I deal with every day on my way to work and Rather than uh, there was kind of two responses. There was like, uh, you know, some people who said this is absolutely horrible. This needs that this is inappropriate behavior. It has to stop. And then she got swamped by all these people saying you're a racist and you're promoting stereotypes because almost all of the men on her way that worked that did this were African-American. And like and all of them. And she said, you're promoting like racist stereotypes and you're a Nazi. And this is like, you know, this evil thing. And it's, it's this very bizarre situation that you get in where if you although she should have perhaps anticipated that uh because if you're if you're going through this happened to a woman in new york said she walked around all day and she was recording the number of 
that kind of thing, cat calls and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And uh, at the end of the day, she had, I don't know, a hundred and whatever of, of, and then somebody pointed out that uh, 80% of them were from Hispanic and black men. Because, and and she, then she, at first she had gotten a lot of sympathy mm-hmm. from feminists, but then when it turned out that the majority were not white men that were doing this, then it was suddenly, it was a bad experiment, you know, <laughs> that was yeah. something they didn't want to know. But, uh Listen, that's it's it's tough. It's sensitive. It's sensitive. I understand. Uh, blacks do not want these kinds of stereotypes to be promoted. Um, I get that, uh, and maybe there are certain experiments that are better left undone because they're out of context or they're whatever. So I'm not condoning the 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 vicious blowback she got at all because it happened to her. But she was trying to prove, I think, that men are awful. She wasn't trying to prove that black men were awful. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of not her fault that the majority of the, you know, uh, so what are you going to do about that? I don't know. That's, yeah. that's a tough call. Well, there definitely are, I mean, there definitely are cultural cultural sure. differences from, because I, you know, I, I know, like, just I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and he said that when he's he's a little bit older than me, he's in his 60s, but... He's Italian, and he said that when uh, when he went back to Italy when he was a kid, it was still completely normal for guys to like stop and whistle and or like pinch. pinch and stuff like that. <laughs> All over, it was completely. But things had shifted yeah. here in North America where that was like completely unacceptable yeah, behavior, and already most of his family. Um, had you know they still kept their Italian Italian identity in many ways, but they had assimilated to the I guess like the Anglo-Saxon French idea that that you just don't do that right like here. Yeah. So they weren't doing that. But so when they went back, suddenly his sister, who was a really good-looking teenager at the time, was getting like her ass pinched by fifty-year-old men, and she's a teenager who's walking around with her family. Right. Wow. And this was just completely <laughs> normal, right? Yeah, I remember. I and remember the, women of my generation that w- when we, we were young and they would go to Italy, and that was a sort of a thing. And a lot of them actually were looking forward to it as a kind of so they could bring it back anecdotally. Yeah, I got pinched <laughs> by seven different Italian <laughs> oh guys. <my> <laughs> yeah, but, like, but it was just this completely. He said it was very, very weird, and he said uh, so. Definitely, it's different cultures can. It, it can there can be places where that's considered okay right in places where that's not and it can change well, very we know very that quickly it's considered okay listen this whole migrant situation in in Europe uh, one of the really horrible aspects of it uh, is that North African culture is extremely you know called misogynistic whatever it is uh, there is a feeling of male entitlement and with women and especially with women that they consider in the West to be brazen hussies because they've heard all these stories about these sexually liberated women and they're not wearing covering and they're showing their shoulders and their ankles and their knees and their, I mean, uh, and so they go ahead. They think I can grope this person. I can like be aggressive. That's, you know, and nobody in their culture has ever said it's wrong. We have to be able to say these things, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very uncomfortable. You know, there was this horrible case of uh, a woman, a, a Swedish woman, who was, uh, I think Swedish, I think Scandinavian anyways. She was, she was raped, and sh- she wrote this whole 
self-deprecatory uh, piece on how bad she felt uh, because she had reported this guy and what happened to him and he, I, he maybe he was going to be deported, whatever. And she said it wasn't his fault. You know, this was, he comes from a culture and it's not, and I feel very bad for him. And I, I mean, the whole thing was That's all about wacky. how, yeah, because he was from this, uh, she had, the whole thing was that she was white and Western. I mean, she didn't buy, she drunk the Kool-Aid. So she couldn't bring herself to say this horrible guy, he raped me and I hope he rots in hell because he was a migrant and therefore, or he was a refugee and therefore he was in a protected class so that morality didn't apply to him. Yeah. Uh, so this is where we're at. Uh, so Well, I think it, it actually ends up this kind of unwillingness to just say you know say something inappropriate and wrong that goes against our community standards this unwillingness to to do this it actually it paradoxically it completely backfires on the progressive agenda mm -hmm. right so to give you a perfect example there was uh my, my friend lives in edmonton becky lives in edmonton and like there was a case where there was um, a, a syrian refugee who was living in uh, in Edmonton, oh, and I, yeah. and he was um, this guy. He was going. To, I think it was at a water park, like an indoor water park, and he was like touching these girls, like you know, young girls, like touching them and like leering and being really gross. Mm -hmm. And I think I think maybe actually like touching himself as well, and he's being disgusting, yeah, yeah. right? Dirty old man, basically. Mm -hmm. And he was doing this, and when when it came out, the CBC was really really terrified of identifying they didn't want to report on it at all and when they did report on it they were very very careful not to mention like absolutely anything about him whatsoever right well of course Ezra Levant who's always like <laughs> you can count on you know Ezra. <laughs> he's always like hunting for this kind of crap uh, to back up his pre-existing narrative I mean I, I know CBC is doing the same thing for their narrative but whatever but so he immediately like it got out and I remember just thinking, I was, I was talking to my friend David about this, and I said, you know, this is how, this is how progressives just, how, how we defeat ourselves. Like, this is so, this, if they had just included that information as, hey, there's this dirty old man who's doing this, here's his description, um, if this happened to you as well, please report it, mm -hmm. because, you know, the police are building a case, which is what they would do in any other situation. Sure. If they caught, like, a... Uh, you know, the five foot eight white guy, probably forties. I know, <laughs> dressed in a hat, black jacket. Like they would describe because usually these things sure. have been going around, f happening for a while, and you want to like get that information out there. They didn't, and then Ezra, you know, in, in the rebel media, he comes out with it, and it just reinforces this idea that the so in this sort of attempt to try and be really really careful on the issues of of race you are throwing young girls under the bus and women under the bus well in the in that you're putting like this as a priority rather than um having a civilized society where my sister can and other montreal women can use the public transit yeah. system in peace you know where little kids in edmonton can like go to a water park in peace like you're putting your sensitivities yeah on this issue you're saying those are more important yeah. than having a civilized society but this is this is this is how these grooming gangs in england got away with it for so long 
Nobody. The social Can you explain this? Because so many of my listeners have, I'm sure, have never heard about this, and really? it's kind of scandalous and crazy. My, I can't my UK family knows about really, it, but, but I, yeah. I can't believe everybody here doesn't know about it. Uh, it, 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 it. The name Rotherham should be kind of redolent of of. Uh, well, what, okay, so what, what, what happened? So uh, this is a this is a, a town that is uh, densely populated with uh, Pakistani immigrants. And the uh, young Pakistani men were preying on uh, the kind of young girls who are undefended. They're either kids in foster families or they're uh, very poor and uh, without a lot of parental supervision and uh, kids at risk. So they would, they would get these young girls, 12, 13, I mean, some younger, and they uh, were grooming them. In other words, they, they would seduce them. Uh, and then they would pimp them out, and uh, this was, and they were doing all kind, drugging them, um, and it was so known. It was there was no secret about it. They were very open about it. Okay, so and the parents that were trying to protect their children reported it to the police. So the police knew about it. The social services knew about it. The teachers knew about. Everybody knew about it. Everybody. And some of these girls were in these gangs for years. And it went on for years, and nobody would do anything about it because they didn't want to. They didn't want to look racist. And it was the the directives they got. This was not they themselves deciding. This was directives from higher up that uh, keep this very quiet. Uh, maybe they tried to do a few things on an individual basis, but meanwhile, these gangs and it was just widely known. Uh, so finally, the scandal. What kind of numbers are we talking about here? Hundreds of girls, hundreds wow. of girls. Yeah, and it wasn't just Rotherham. There was I forget the name of the other town, uh, but the, the 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 salient fact uh, jumped out. You know, these were from men, young men from a culture where hello, uh, misogyny is the norm. We know that. We know that mm-hmm. the stats on honor killings for example it's like what, 10 thousand a year in um, Pakistan? It, ten thousand may be a bit high the official number is a thousand people on the inside often say ten thousand but let's let's say five thousand okay five thousand a year honor killings of girls and women uh you know this is this is an astronomical figure uh we in this country uh have about 25 honor killings of girls and women that have been admitted to be honor killings, like where the parents, the, the fathers and brothers that killed them said, this was for our family honor. Um, and we have a lot of immigrants from, from the Muslim world. But, but the particular enclaves that we're talking about are uh, from a part of Pakistan, I think, that is undereducated and under, you know, it's, it's Up not. Up in the it, north, yeah. We, we get very skilled, educated people. So anyways, um, the scandal did finally, and they finally went to trial. Uh, but years, years, and to me, this is so criminal. Uh, a mentality, the mentality is criminal that you would allow children to be raped on a daily basis, sometimes six, seven, eight times a day, rather than uh, be perceived as racist by who? Who's going to perceive you as racist? Maybe some Pakistani people? Or progressives who, even progressives, I don't think, even white progressives in England would not have dared to say that young girls should be raped, you know, so that we don't look racist. But this, this, this to me, in a country that's democratic, a country that gave us 
um, the whole idea of the individual as sovereign, the rights of the individual, all this stuff uh, was so undermined, so, so it was such a tawdry business uh, that it just says something about multiculturalism. It says something about um, <laughs> this whole left-wing obsession, obsession with race and inability, the inability to say some cultures are better than others or safer for women at least, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, or produce more equitable results gender-wise or do a lot of other things better. And if we can't say that, then we're doomed because it means that we must tolerate uh, behaviors that we would have said were totally unacceptable years ago, uh, not worried about race. It just, you know, this was our morality. And uh, we'll have to have no standards at all. Uh, so to me, this is, uh, this is a sign of a culture in decline when you can't impose your own standards. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you do back home. You're here now. This is, we don't, we don't rape little girls, okay? Yeah. Uh, and get away with it. You know, it's like that guy in India, that Lord, whoever it was, uh, when they were in charge of India and it was the widow was being burned on the uh, funeral pyre. Oh, the famous story. Yeah. yeah, he said, well, in our culture, we burn widows. And he said, yeah, in our culture, people who burn widows are hanged on the gallows. So, you know, <laughs> your choice. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the- so, so really, but that sort of says it all. You, you know, you could say, oh, but that was, that was terrible. That was imperialism. Well, you know what? Imperialism, when the light shines a certain way sometimes, wasn't the worst thing that could happen in some places. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely obvious. I, I don't know why it's not obvious to people that definitely, you know, I like Sam Harris's idea of the moral landscape, right? Where he says that there are, there are different mountain peaks, right? It's not as if it's just one culture is kind of better. There are some, you can have two cultures that are very, very different, but they're as as great yeah. you know on balance right and then you have valleys yeah. right and i if we were to think about probably one of the deepest values uh, valleys it would probably be the caliphate that was set up right by mm. by isis and i know you're organizing an event with the institute for genocide studies yes, right which is, uh, can you maybe uh, talk about that a little oh, bit because like, that, that's right. like an exact such a clear example of a deep valley a I really mean. deep valley okay isis yes i, I don't want to talk about isis but what they have done is so very terrible and so many people have died and been tortured and so but one of the most ruthless and disgusting things that isis did was uh there's a very vulnerable people living in uh the kurdish kurdish area of iraq called the yazidi people very fragile people there's only about a million of them left they're very ancient people they're the oldest people with the assyrians the oldest people uh, in that area of the world, long before Judaism, long before Christianity, long before uh, Islam. And so they are the indigenous people, really, of that area. And yet, you know, uh, they're very fragile because they are at the mercy. They, they're, they're a peaceful people. They're a monotheistic people. Uh, they have no, they do not proselytize. Uh, they live peaceably, with the, they wish to live peaceably with their neighbors. And they get along with Muslims, Christians, Jews. They get along with everybody. So mm-hmm. they're 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 a nice people. Um, they're not a very lettered people because they've never had that uh, drive for education. Uh, so they're they're very fragile culturally. Anyways, 
ISIS uh, swooped down on their sacred, the sacred places that they lived in. Uh, the Kurds were supposed to protect them. They tried. They eventually gave up. Uh, so they were sitting ducks, and the Yazidi, uh, the uh, the ISIS uh, killed a lot of the men, and then they took all the girls and young women as sex slaves, and. That's what they, they were selling them to their fighters. They were giving them to their fighters, and some of them were trading them back and forth. Oh, and they they had they had catalogs, yeah. with their pictures and descriptions that they would pass out to their fighters because so they could like so trade them like yeah. like baseball cards. Unbelievable! I so so they have been through unbelievable trauma, and they it seems to me were more badly in need of rescue than than the Syrian uh, refugees. As, as bad as their plight was, they can go back again when this dust settles. They are not, they are, they are not really refugees. They're displaced people. And it seemed to me that we should have been putting our efforts into saving people that can never go back and that whose, whose lives there are finished. Uh, and that would be the Yazidis and many of the Christians who have also been persecuted. Now, the Christians have a diaspora of Christians all over the world to help them. But the Yazidis have nobody. They don't have a diaspora. And, of course, a lot of uh, Jews looked at the Yazidis who have suffered in their long history 14 genocides. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're uh, just, uh, their history is, it break your heart. And we looked, you know, a lot of my Jewish friends looked at them and said, oh, my God, this is like the Jews in miniature because, you know, there's so few of them left and they're going to disappear. Like, this is, this is we have to do something. A million. So, yeah. So, there's like, what, 15 million Jews on planet Earth? Actually, now there's about 11 and a half or 12. We haven't even made up our pre-Holocaust figures, but we will, but we will, especially in Israel where the birth rate is very high. And yeah. not just amongst the Orthodox Jews. Like, no, no uh, yeah. secular Jews in Israel have they three have kids optimism. each. Yeah, three or four. They have optimism. Three, yeah. They're very buoyant. To the, yeah. last, the last episode of the Likeville podcast was with uh, my friend David Boxenhorn, who moved from New York to live in Israel, and he's... He's, he's quite orthodox, but we, we talked all about this at length, and he, he talked about um, the incredible fertility and how much how many kids people are having. It's, See, this is a sign yeah. of, of cultural optimism when people have a lot of kids. When they stop having kids, uh, it's not really a very good sign of how they feel about the future of their own culture. But anyways, that's yeah. an aside. So, so uh, a lot of, I mean, it wasn't only Jews, of course, there were other people too said we have to get these people over here and the government was singularly unhelpful i mean they did eventually bring over you know they've brought over about 1200 of them but they didn't make it a priority um, because the un was was feeding that they were going with a feed from the un and the un was pushing the syrians and the yazidis were sort of off to the side they were marginalized and was left to the efforts of uh, individuals like Steve Maiman who went in personally and um, and and uh, uh, Majid uh, L. Sorry, I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. I, I should know his name off. Yeah, I can't remember it either. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. but anyways, him too, um, and other individuals yeah. who made and the, it. The, the woman from the New York Times who did the Caliphate podcast, she also went in because she has crazy, crazy. Uh, if you've ever listened to the Caliphate podcast, oh, they're horrible. It's, they're horrible. it's so. I, but she went in there. And I think I saw her documentary. I, I I don't know her name, but I did see a documentary yeah. with a woman who, an American woman who was. Yeah. So, they're being they're being uh, taken in by European countries as well. So, anyways, Canada has a few hundred of them. 
several hundred, and they're mostly settled in the Ontario. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any in Montreal, but that's why I wanted to do an awareness evening uh, to tell people about the Yazidi. But in, I went to a, a, a Yazidi program in um, Ontario, and there I interviewed two, uh, two women who were sex slaves I mean, they're broken people, but they, they're trying to make a life here. And uh, their pastor, uh, he, he interpreted for me. And so I spoke to them at length. And one, she just told me her story. And it's a horrible story being passed around for months and months. And, and eventually back to her original sales, the, the guy who originally sold her. And he kept her for six months. And so now she's here, uh, the tears just rolling down her face. And I'm just at a loss to, like, how do you even talk to someone like this? It's just horrible. At the end of her story, I, she tells me that she was on a bus in London, Ontario, and she sees on the same bus her captor. Her no. Yes, yes, she saw him, the guy who, who was selling her and who also owned her himself for six months. And she's, like, in shock. They both get off at the same stop. She looks at him, he looks at her, covers his face, and runs away. Oh, my she, yeah, God. She goes to the refugee office that where they were processed. She tells the person there, and that person says to her, according to her, don't tell anybody. What? Not, yeah, don't tell anybody, because this guy obviously got in as a Syrian refugee. under Like, he slipped in the net mm-hmm. along with a whole bunch of others. So he's now she knows she's living in the same city. Uh, this was this was so horrifying to me. So I wrote a column and I included that story in it. And I was contacted by the uh, border control people and I was contacted by the London police. I wasn't contacted by any politician. Not a single politician uh, contacted me to see what they could do about that story um, or anybody from uh, the PMO or anything like that or from immigration so but the London police said they were on it Uh, they were gonna you know I haven't heard back from them so I don't know if any if they actually caught him oh and she gave them both his real name and his ISIS name you know because you take a new name when you go into ISIS like she was she gave them a complete so did they catch him I'd like to think that they will eventually I think they would have let me know if they did so these people are so traumatized that uh, it's very hard to even help them resettle because they're they they're kind of emotionally paralyzed. They you know so so I'm working with a, a group called um, the Abraham Project, uh, which is a subsidiary of Mozud M O Z U U D dot org R S V M O Z U U D R S V P dot org, and our event is November nineteenth at the uh, in in collaboration with uh, the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies, um, and at their their uh, at their offices. So thank yeah. you for thank you for giving me the opportunity. To yeah, no, I I just think it's a it's an absolutely amazing story. And by the way, that one of the in the Caliphate podcast, one of the main people that she interviews throughout the podcast is somebody who um, is from a from a, a small town in Ontario and he was happy family parents are together totally happy family happy did he says very clearly that he was not a victim of of you know discrimination or anything. he had like a happy he got radicalized by Isis online Jeez. he went over there participated in all sorts of atrocities uh. and then eventually slipped um, got disillusioned with it slipped out and came back and was living 
in Ontario going to like university after, you know, having beheaded people and done all these things. Crazy. And when the podcast came out, apparently uh, there was a huge outcry of Canadians who heard this New York Times podcast and said, how come nobody's doing anything about this? Because a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, right? Is that, I mean, we have, we have a, a government that doesn't seem fixated on they seem more fixated on on uh, you know the narrative of 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 the all these poor refugees than than about making sure that homegrown terrorists don't uh, you know don't get off. And yeah. Well, I have no idea how to. I was talking to one of the guests we had on a few weeks ago, who's an expert on on terrorism, and he has like a, a company that consults on this and everything, security company. And he said, uh, he said, you know, this is going to be a much bigger deal in the future because it used to be that um, terrorism, as it spread, if you go like a hundred years ago, whether it be anarchists or mm-hmm. you know whatever, they it would be face to face interactions, mm-hmm. people meeting in basements sure. and mobilizing that way. Now a lot of people have find their community online, and so somebody who who has no real physical contact sure. with it can be radicalized, right? Well, uh, was what seven or eight years ago, um, uh, a, a francophone writer, uh, a journalist, uh, Pierre de F- Oh Faberville. No, um, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name. He wrote this book, Montrealistan, and he describes. And they're very open. They're very open. He. He, he didn't even have to infiltrate. He just interviewed all these people that have found their terrorist ideas online and who are uh, committed to this ideology of jihadism uh, and who some of whom have been involved in plots. And the, But what's amazing is that he wrote this book, oh, Faberville, no, no, oh, I'm so well, sorry. Well, Fabrice, Fab, Fabrice. Pierreville or something. Oh, no, this is <laughs> So terrible. it's called Montrealistan. Montrealistan. And yeah. I, I did write a column about it, and I was just shocked. I interviewed him. I was just... He was present in Paris at the Montreal... At Montreal, at the synagogue bombing of 1993. So he got very into this subject. He's from France. And he wrote this book and exposed these cells. He named them by name, all these people. They're just living ordinary lives in Montreal. They're all over the place here, from mm-hmm. Algeria and from all, you know. And I said, well, did your book cause a tremendous... Not really. It sold about 3,000 copies. It was never translated into English. It sort of sank like a stone somewhere. But honestly, uh, I think people are living in such a bubble here. They think it can't happen here, even though it occasionally does, even though plots are foiled all yeah. the time. Um, but as long as it doesn't, the big one doesn't happen... One of these days, God forbid, the big one could happen. And then everybody will say, well, where were we? You know, why weren't we talking about this? Because it was considered politically incorrect. That's why. So Yeah. Well, I think the, the question always is, how do you, in a free society, how do you police what people think and what people... Because, yeah. you know, always if you have, let's say, this applies to everything. If you have a diet book, right? Like the, I don't know, South Beach diet, right? And it sells like you know, 10 million copies, right? Of those 10 million copies, how many people actually stick to the diet? You know, maybe some people do it a little bit yeah. and then they they throw it off the wagon and the, the book's still sitting on their shelf, but it's not really doing anything. And then you have a small percentage of people that actually like stick to, this is like this with any kind of system, 
right? So if you have a bunch of people who on opinion polls, when you're going to interview somebody for a book like this, and they say, well, I, I believe this and I believe in the right? Um, the trick is always, how do you figure out, because we, we can't, I mean, we can't police people for thinking an idea. Like that, that would lead to a society we don't want to be in. But you have to figure out when are people going to actually act on the idea, right? And that's what, like a, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about this a great deal in his last book, Skin in the Game. He says it's, uh, as a trader, he, he made a lot of money on Wall Street as a trader. And he said, what you learn very, very quickly is to see like where, whether somebody is just engaging in cheap talk or whether they're actually going to act on what they're saying. So if somebody says, oh, you got to invest in this stock, it's really, really great, and they give you a whole argument for how amazing it is, uh, take that with a grain of salt. Sure. If you notice that they've just invested 20% of their portfolio in that, um, they've just demonstrated by their actions that they really believe. Yeah. doesn't mean that's a great stock. It means they believe it is, right? So he says that the problem with survey data, period, whether it be survey data that shows that you know, people, you know, don't believe in democracy in certain communities or whatever. The problem with those kinds of survey data is that how do you know that this is going to translate to action? Like we, you know, with what happened, that horrible synagogue uh, shooting that just recently happened in Pittsburgh, uh, that clearly is a demonstration, as many others have, that anti-Semitism leads to actual violence in certain instances mm -hmm. right there's we have examples of mm -hmm. it so do you have any how do you think we we tease that out right like if you have people that have radical ideas and they're living in montreal but they're not doing anything about it um well i guess i guess when you've seen evidence that people first of all i guess internet monitoring uh I, i'm not saying that they shouldn't be free to go on the internet and but, but there are ways to surveil. If you have evidence that somebody has been in chat forums where they're discussing and encouraging jihadism, at least these people should be known to the authorities. Maybe they are, and, and um, this, this reporter who seemed to think that there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, or enough interest in these guys, uh, maybe they are surveilling them, and maybe, maybe uh, they aren't a big threat. But... Um, uh, I think we should be allowed to discuss it. I think, I yeah. think it should be something that is up for discussion. And one of the reasons it's not is because it's considered Islamically incorrect to talk about people who... One of the things about ISIS um, is that nothing they're saying is not found in sacred texts. I mean, it's all stuff that's in the texts. And that doesn't mean that good Muslims should be, you know, uh, joining ISIS. What it means is that there's a lot of stuff in many sacred texts that if you take it seriously, it can lead to bad stuff. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, I mean, if you lived by the book of Leviticus... That would create a, yeah, a, a lot of blood, caliphate yes. ISIS type society that stoning would be pretty people. horrific. Yes, yes, you'd be stoning you know. adulterers and all kinds of bad yeah. things. It's 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 how you interpret. Uh, you know, I I just uh, one of the things that was preoccupying me for the last month was a professor uh, at McGill who just lost his tenure. Um, he was up for tenure and was denied tenure on 
spurious grounds, which which is there's evidence for that, and he just lost his appeal, so it's it's on my mind today. I'm I feel so great. tell tell the story about it. Okay, yeah. so his name is uh, Ahmed Fekri uh, Ibrahim, and he's a professor at. Uh, of Islamic law in the Middle East uh, studies and it's in the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill. He was hired in 2012. Uh, he came with unbelievable credentials and he's he's written books and articles, I mean far more than the average person who is at his stage of the game. Uh, his students consider him amazing. He has more comments like this is the best professor I ever had at McGill. The highest his rankings are consistently higher than anyone else in the department. His classes were full to bursting and all that. He went through one of these horrible false allegation Me Too things after having had a consensual affair. It's very much like the Steve Galloway case. Mm-hmm. Probably, yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, but the, his real crime in the eyes of his detractors was that he taught Islamic law um, in the same way that uh, you might teach constitutional law, he taught it as law. He didn't whitewash it. He wasn't. He didn't say it's bad or it's good or anything else. He just this is Islamic law, and, and his class, um, uh, his classes were very full, and they were about seventy uh, percent non-Muslim and thirty percent Muslim. And he'd have you know full classes. They all were enthralled with him and they you know I interviewed many of his students and they said you know what I loved he he had no ideology he had no he just taught and and he didn't and he, he used the Socratic method well what do you think and he would tease it out he'd play devil's advocate like the kids loved him because mm-hmm. it was there was no linear kind of path this is what you know so he had one student who deliberately came to his class in order to sabotage him and she immediately started uh um, challenging his his uh, you know uh, things that he would say and and for example she would say uh, Islam means peace and it actually doesn't it means submission but he was kind of nervous about you know she was so dogmatic and she took over the class and she wouldn't shut up and she you know she really uh, was out to get him mm-hmm. uh, because he he wasn't he wasn't promoting the religion of peace narrative. And once, when, oh, oh yeah, he said there's two kinds of jihad in Islamic law. There's offensive jihad and defensive jihad. And she started screaming, there's no offensive jihad. Jihad means, <laughs> jihad means soul search. You know, it's that narrative. It's, it means yeah. soul searching and struggling to find, you know. But, and he said, well, here's the text. Here's where it says, you know. Uh, and if you want to know more about it, here's a good book. And she screamed at him, why would I want to read a book that was written by a white man about Islam? You know, I mean, she was really out to get him. Then she wrote a McGill article denouncing him and saying that he made her feel unsafe. And it was like the whole thing. And after that, uh, they, a com- campaign of slander, sexual slander started against him. It was all smoke, no fire. Nobody ever made a complaint about him, ever. Nobody. Uh, ever complained to McGill about him, but they started putting stickers up in washrooms and Facebook postings. Uh, you know, there's a sexual predator in our department, and have you ever been, has Professor Ibrahim ever been inappropriate with you? Has he touched you? Has he this? Has he that? And, and it was like, it grew like wildfire. Um, and uh, it sort of, uh, he asked for an investigation. They wouldn't investigate. Uh, so he was left in, it was like, Kafka-esque, I mean, what was it called? Kafka trapping, you know, you, mm-hmm. and, and so the students started to believe it and they started hearing rumors. Yeah, I hear this woman, but she, you know, so, so everything conspired against him 
And and she and this woman who wanted him out was very forthright. And she said, uh, and she was just 20 years old. I mean, you know, uh, and she said, I want, he's up for tenure. We have to stop it. And so it was, it was really a mobbing against him. Now, when you get tenure, you're only allowed to consider certain things. You're only allowed to consider your scholarship, uh, your teaching, your pedagogy, and your service to the community, to the academic community and to the larger community. And all these, all these criteria, uh, Professor Ibrahim was stellar, not just good, but stellar. There was nothing they could get him on. Uh, but they did, in the end, deny him tenure, and they based it on some, they said, well, a few students had commented that they didn't feel safe in his class, like four out of 400. But but you're not allowed to consider comments. Like tenure, you're allowed to consider rankings, but you're not allowed, because some people will maliciously put comments. In any case, 371 students were saying, this was a great class. I loved it. He, I felt very free to express my opinions. He, he, he allowed any opinions to be expressed. I felt very good as a woman because he never made me, you know, he encouraged me to speak out. It went, it went on and on and on. So this was such a bogus. This was such a terrible. It was, it was a, a really, they wanted him out, that his department wanted him out or several people in the department. They got him out. His appeal was just denied. His academic career is over. It's over. Unbelievable. And, and, and the Me Too thing was really used as a sort of obfuscatory uh, veil behind which was the real problem was that the, the other teachers in the department did not like the fact that he was uh, teaching Islam objectively. And in an unorthodox very way. Very unorthodox. Within because, that context. Yeah, because yeah. they were all very uh, active uh, in in you know the narrative the narrative um, the religion of peace narrative and 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 he wasn't even he wasn't promoting a counter narrative all he he was just laying it out this is this is how it is uh, so his life is kind of ruined um, he's a lovely guy uh, I spoke to many students who just they're in love with the guy they say he is unbelievably great eighty students signed a petition saying please don't derail this tenure he's the best professor ever i mean i've i just um <laughs> it's sort of preoccupied me for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and i, I wrote a very long piece for quillette yeah no i remember I mean, reading that i we actually we discussed it in one of my classes at oh, length did because you? Oh. yeah well as the general issue of that right of student teacher relationships and and you know because my, my position is that um i think it's i think it's a really bad idea yeah. for a professor to ever get into a relationship with a student. I think it's a really bad idea. I think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. If one of my friends was getting into something, I would, you know, it's, it's slap and say, you idiot. Like, don't do that. And I, I have been in the situation where I've said to you, like, that's a bad idea. Like, that's really... I agree with you. That's I agree unwise. With you. Yeah. That's I, very I, unwise. Yeah. But it should not be illegal yeah. there's a lot of things well, that are well, unwise way, yeah that but, but shouldn't McGill be did, illegal yeah, but mcgill didn't have a policy about it so and, and, even if they even if they did no, i would say did, that policy would be wrong okay but yeah. let's say they did i said if they had a policy oh he said if there was a policy i would never have done it but there was no policy in fact i checked there was no policy uh so it was consensual uh she she's an adult and he said, in retrospect, of course, of course, 
I regret it deeply because who knew that when he broke up with her, it's always, you know, when the guy breaks up with the woman who doesn't want to be broken up with. This is not the same woman who made the trouble for him later on, but mm-hmm. she was the one that started, that complained uh, after they broke up. Uh, suddenly she decided there had been a power imbalance, even though she was a former student but was never going to be taught by him again and really there was there was nothing he could give her a value or take away like there was no power imbalance Mm -hmm. because it was yes I agree with you that he was it was foolish it was foolish but these are matters that McGill's own standards does not allow to be considered when you're up for tenure this is off the table uh, and it's and, and I I mean the standards are very very clear. The you're restricted to these areas. So uh, because it was uh, uh, there was no crime, and there was no complaint. She didn't make a formal complaint. She complained to members of the department about the power imbalance, and they decided, oh, he created a toxic environment. But I mean, these are all vague. What does that mean? A toxic environment? Yeah, it meant they don't like him. Uh, so, yeah. but um, it should never have impinged on his on his tenure, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, appointment or, or yeah. anything like that. So and it's especially crazy at McGill. Cause if I remember the numbers at McGill, I think it's like 97% of people who go for tenure at yes. McGill get it. That's exactly the statistic yeah. that I heard too. Yeah. And because oh, my friend, my friend Giovanni was denied tenure the sociology department and we were very very upset and it was a very strange grounds what was situation um well you know i don't want to get into it on the air but but basically it was okay suffice it to say that they couldn't really go after him on his record because his record was was great he had the necessary publications he'd done lots of departmental service he had done lots of different things they basically just didn't like him Okay, um, so it was the same thing. They didn't like him, um, and he, and so they found ways to sort of make it not happen. But he appealed it, and during the appeal process, one of our mutual friends was was handling it, and like uh, he's the one who told me he's like, you know, I said, well, you know, does everybody get tenure? Like, yeah, practically everybody, it's yeah. like ninety seven percent, like of people who go for tenure at McGill get it. I mean, it's not like. You know, places like Harvard or Princeton where, uh, you know, most people don't get tenure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, um, you know, my, my Even if you're hired for a tenure track? Yeah, if you're hired for, like, take um, David Bell, right, who um, is at the Atlantic, right? Uh, he was, when I was at Hopkins, he was teaching at Johns Hopkins. And he started off at Princeton and uh, really, really nice guy. Uh, and when he was like getting close to going up for tenure, uh, he said to them, he's like, look, I've got offers from other places. I want to know, are you actually going to give me tenure here or not? And they were kind of like, eh, and they weren't, they were being noncommittal. And so he finally just said, okay, well, I'm going to take this offer at Johns Hopkins. And I think he's actually, I think he's back at Princeton now, like tenured now. But, but so there are places where, you know, only 25%, 30% of people who are hired tenure track actually get tenure. Like a lot of those Ivy League places. And places like Oxford and, and Cambridge, it's even lower. Like you can be your whole life basically contract to contract. That's so interesting. But McGill, I, it's yeah. almost everybody gets. That's so, what I heard. So if he didn't, then they must have really had it out for they him. They did have it out for him. And, and in fact, 
we have evidence. Uh, the reason I wrote about it is because, uh, uh, by the way, he told me that that he looked and and in the entire history of the Islamic Institute Department, like he's the first in their entire history. Uh, so that really tells you something. Um, we have. The reason I, I wrote about it is because he presented me with he's this this young woman who hated him. Mm-hmm. She uh, she was in a room with a bunch of other students at a meeting, and she allegedly called him a rapist, like right in front of the assistant provost too. Uh, so and and that was confirmed to me by other people. So he he is suing her for defamation. And so because he's suing her for defamation and Julius Gray is his lawyer and he's also suing a colleague who, who said the same thing, allegedly said the same thing. Anyways, uh, he has amassed uh, supporting documents, like 200 pages of supporting documents. And there is so much compelling evidence in there, like internal emails, um, directives that were given to the tenure committee that fell into his hands that were not that he was never supposed to see, but by accident were attached to another document. And you have his department head, who's head of his department tenure committee, instructing the committee members, here are the things you are not allowed to consider. And then they, and then he gives them a whole list of things. Now, strike that from the, re- you know, it's like it's saying to the jury, you may not consider the fact that this woman was a prostitute and like, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but that's basically what he did, which, whoa, you know, that plus, plus the provost, uh, Christopher Manfredi, um, who signed off on the tenure denial, had a year before uh, offered him a payout if he would leave, if he would, if he would withdraw his application for tenure and leave the university. And he, at that time, had no idea that this campaign against him was going to start. And he said, why would I do that? No, of course, in retrospect. But, um, and then the same provost, the same provost is signing off, accepting this tenure denial as if this was like the first time he's actually looked at this you know, tenure case. So he, to me, is in a terrible conflict of interest mm-hmm. because that was not revealed. That was not, never supposed to be revealed, this offer of a payout. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in those documents that is, whoa, uh, so incriminating mm-hmm. morally to McGill. And I don't want it to end. I don't want this story to just end with him having his life ruined. I think McGill has done something just awful. Uh, uh, in denying him this tenure and really uh, it really yeah uh, how do you think it's gonna end up like how do you think it's well gonna... I mean you know uh, they they can just tough it out because they're kind of impregnable you know the uh, what could what can he well his next step he says if he can get a lawyer to do a judicial review or, or someone who's skilled in judicial review he he would love to be able to sue McGill and I think he has a really good case but of course his funds are very, you know, now he's he's going to be paid out till 2019 when his ten, when his contract ends, mm-hmm. and then he's unemployable. He they didn't give him any classes to teach. I mean, he's sitting home, uh, churning with misery and anxiety, and you know he's got two kids to support. He's 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 divorced amicably, and they share parenting. Um, so he's in a very bad situation, and and of course in terms of morale. I, I really do worry about him because, uh, man, this is a terrible situation to be in. And, and uh, so I would love it not to end, and I would love him to be able to sue McGill, and I'd love McGill to lose that case. Yeah. But that's, you know, I had kind of hoped that when I wrote this long 
article and exposed a lot of this stuff like you know that that mcgill would go um <laughs> you yeah. know maybe we shouldn't uh maybe we should grant him the appeal and just keep this quiet but they're toughing it out they're toughing it out and uh i guess they can because they're a big institution and even if they even if they get sued you know they've got endless pockets deep pockets and he has very limited funds unless he found a pro bono person who would do the judicial review you know uh on it uh, yeah well i mean this is the there's been a few cases high profile cases in the last few years andrew potter is another example yes. right where McGill just caves to the mob, as it were. Mm -hmm. They cave to people demanding somebody's head. And if you do that on a regular basis, then, I mean, the whole point of having tenure in academic institutions is that you're supposed to have people that are allowed to sort of teach unpopular ideas. Like that was, it used to be the case that, okay, we've got this, you know, radical communist who says, Stalin is doing the right thing over there and we think he's crazy, but he can teach because he's a sure. prof. And now it seems increasingly yeah. they fold right away, right? Which well, actually I mean, you know, and, and he didn't think he was teaching anything controversial because he wasn't teaching anything controversial. He was he was really uh, teaching objective literature. It's it's kind of like uh, as if somebody was teaching the merchant of Venice and some Jewish student decided that that this guy had to go because you know he was obviously uh, uh, didn't have the the correctness to to you know because he's harboring anti-Semitism. I don't know what. I mean, you you can't do that. You can't. Yeah. But you can apparently. And so this one <laughs> and this one 19-year-old at the time, young woman, decided he's not getting tenure, and and she and she effectively got him fired. I mean, I, I, I can't get over it. Do you know the power yeah. that this, so she's like probably walking around. Well, maybe her defamation suit will take the smirk off her face, but eventually, but, but uh, imagine, imagine being 19 and saying, look at the power I have. What is it? What, what's the message there? Uh, that's, yeah. that's. Well, it's funny because I was, um, this woman that I worked with, Dorothy Ross, when I was in grad school, she went to she went to Columbia back in the day. She she must be in her seventies or eighties now. But like, and she said they used to have separate uh, dormitories for the the men and the women, and the men were allowed to go out all hours. Oh yes. And the women had a curfew, and they were really kind of treated um, in kind of a childish way. And she said it really bugged her because. The guys would go out and see shows and they would have fun and smoke cigarettes and have, you know, really interesting intellectual debates at cafes till like the wee hours. And they had to be yeah. at, back home at curfew. And so she said you know, one of the really great things about the, the 60s and 70s was breaking down these things and saying, no, you treat a, an 18 year old woman as if she's a voting member of society and you don't treat her like a child, you don't infantilize her. And she said, but it does, and she said this, you know, this is going back to the uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s. She said, strangely enough, we seem to be circling back oh, yeah. to that Very infantilization, yeah. right? Where now, you know, like I think, like I said, I think student-teacher relationships are a really bad idea. Very unwise, right? But I, I also think getting 
stoned every morning is a really unwise idea. But I don't think it should be illegal to do unwise things, right? Well, now they're putting a policy in place. McGill, uh, just this summer, at the end of the summer, decided that, uh, uh, and I think because of this case, that they really did need a policy. So, yeah, put it in place and say, no student teacher, then then you won't have this problem again. But you can't retroactively criminalize somebody. But a policy like that, I think on its face would be illegal because you can't, you can say, for instance, in an organization, you can say you are not allowed to be in a relationship with somebody that is your, uh, that you are supervising directly, right? You can say that. Mm-hmm. That happened to my, my uncle and aunt. They fell in love at work uh, and they basically had to report the relationship. And they, the superior said, well, look, uh, one of you has to leave yeah, because this is our policy that this is just not not a, a good thing to have so um so he left he, he got another job but i understand saying that uh you can't be in a relationship with somebody who's in your class or somebody who's uh you're supervising their work or something like that but if it's just the fact that you're both in the same institution mm-hmm. and if that policy goes all over north america there are college towns where the university is 80% of the population. That's true. Right? Yeah. Like thousands of people. That's the only thing. So you're basically telling two adults yeah. that maybe have are on opposite sides of the campus that have nothing to do, right? Like she's in the physics department, right? And he's, uh, you know, an uh, undergrad, in upper level of undergrad in the drama department. Like they have nothing to do with each other. And if they meet yeah. each other on Tinder, they're not allowed to like date because of this policy that yeah. seems like it's uh in injecting itself into the personal lives of people well it is and it definitely is i i i'm against it i think uh people should do what they want to do and uh it's it's uh, up to them and and it's not up to uh you know I, this whole idea of a toxic environment <laughs> that has no basis in yeah. any kind of evidence except the feeling of this young woman who he broke up with because he was going away for research purposes back to Egypt for four months and he didn't want to have, you know, I mean, it wasn't a serious relationship. And it always seems to happen when the, when, when the breakup comes, if it's initiated by the guy. And these women just don't take it well. So now they feel, uh, you know, kind of abandoned or, or put upon it, you know, and so then they start bitching about it. And before they know it, they have women friends saying, you know what? Uh, he was he was exploiting you, or he was you know you you're the victim here, mm-hmm. of, and and before you know it, yeah, seems like she is a victim because she's unhappy. She's yeah. unhappy, so she must be a victim. Um, it's like this this business of I was raped because I regretted you know having sex last night. So yeah, or Monica Lewinsky <laughs> saying that she's oh. part of the come yeah, on really. like part of the I mean yes. What Bill Clinton is a sleazeball. The biggest sleazebag in the world. Sleazeball. But she came on to him but she, so strong. But <laughs> even if he came, like, they're both adults. Yeah. And they're in a workplace situation. They're both behaving like idiots. Well, that was a power work- imbalance because he was her boss. You know, I mean, you could say. but Yes. But but even then, to say that that's equivalent yeah. to oh, yeah. the stuff that Harvey Weinstein and other people are doing. It's just Police. It's yeah. madness. It's madness. <laughs> but anyway, on that wonderfully cheery note, I uh, guess we'll, we'll end there. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank it's you. fascinating. I can talk to you about absolutely anything. It's like all over the place. Well, we're both so opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, so I will be looking forward to that event, and I. Yeah. I'm so glad you're coming. Yeah, no, That's it's so gonna great. it's gonna be fantastic. All right, thank okay. you very much. Bye.